0: Well, hey, First Church, hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited to be with you, and if you're new here, my name's Chad, and we have family right now that's meeting out at Stone Canyon as well as watching online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our family room today as we study God's Word. (laughs) I'd like to start with sharing something I discovered about myself a while back, and you could probably say the same about yourself, and it's this, I'm satisfied with what I have until you have something that I don't have. Can anybody identify with that? I'm satisfied with what I have until I discover, until I find out you have something that I don't have. I think we've all noticed this in other people. We've probably seen it in ourselves. This is true for kids or teenagers, adults. It doesn't matter. And I also found out the other day it's true for monkeys as well. There was a study that was done, some research done a while back, where they trained monkeys to exchange a rock for a piece of cucumber. So basically these researchers, scientists, they would give monkeys a rock and then the, rock, the monkey would hand the rock over back over to the scientist, the researcher and they would give them a slice of cucumber and this went on for days and the monkeys would receive their cucumbers very satisfied, very happy with that until one day they decided to give one of the monkeys a grape in exchange for his rock rather than a slice of cucumber and the monkey beside him didn't like it that much take a look at this video clip and see what happened so we see the monkey on the left, he has his rock, he hands it over, he gets a slice of cucumber. He's fine, he's happy, but the monkey on the right, you're right, he hands his rock over and he exchanges it for a grape. So the monkey on the left, he notices this. He notices that his buddy has a grape. He's like, well, I want a grape. So he grabs his rock, hoping for a grape. Instead, he gets a slice of cucumber. And look at how he reacts. He reacts. I don't want that. I want a grape. Come on. Look at him. I mean, he's mad. He's upset about this. He is disturbed. What is going on? So he thinks, well, I'll get another rock and I'll try to exchange it. Maybe this time I'll get a grape. So he gets his rock, he looks at it, and he goes, and he, the research like, Come on, give it to me. He hands it to him. He gets a slice of cucumber. He looks at the cucumber. I don't want that. What are you doing? What's going on? Again, he's mad. He's upset. Let me out of here. Give me my grape. It's not fair. Now, what's interesting to me is that this monkey, for days, they said, was satisfied with his slice of cucumber until the one day his friend, his buddy, had something he didn't have. And that's not just true for monkeys, we all know, that's true for human beings as well. Whether it's kids, teenagers, or adults, we're satisfied with what we have until someone else has something we don't have. And I think that happens because oftentimes we have the wrong, or you might just say a misguided perspective about what life's really all about. And that was was the case for a guy that we encounter in Luke chapter 12. It's a guy who made a request of Jesus. Really, he demanded something of Jesus. And we see that he had the wrong perspective about life as he blurted something out to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. That's what we're going to study today. That's where we're going to be camped out. And in Luke 12 verse 1, what we find out is that Jesus has been traveling throughout the region of Galilee. And as he moves from town to town, village to village, a crowd is growing. And the people following him, the group of people following him, is becoming so large that the Bible says that thousands of people are gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. In fact, it's so large, and in verse 1 it says that they were trampling on one another in order to get close to Jesus. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is teaching to this large group of people, remember thousands of people, they are listening to him teach, there's a guy in the audience, a guy in the crowd that blurts something out, that interrupts Jesus, Now, I've never been in full-time children's ministry, but I've taught kids enough to know that anytime you get a group of children together and you try to teach them something, there's always going to be an interruption. There's always going to be some kid who wants to interrupt you and ask some question or interject some thought. And typically what happens is, you know, that kid will raise his hand, put his hand up, and you're in the middle of making this great point, so you don't call on him. You just want him to put his hand back down because you know he just wants to interrupt you and redirect the conversation. And so you ignore him. But then this is what happens. The kid will start to prop his hand up, you know, because he gets tired. And then he'll switch hands and he'll prop that hand up he's waving at you to try to get your attention still you're not calling on him and eventually he'll stand up with his hands in the air like call on me and then when you still don't do that he just blurts out his question or blurts out whatever it is he wants to say and he interrupts you anyway and you wish that you would have called on him in the first place just so he would not cause all that commotion and you've probably been there if you've ever taught kids I remember one time Alice and I volunteered to teach a vacation Bible school at a local church we didn't go to that church but they need some volunteers so we volunteered to help and we were engaged to be married and it was was a class of third through fifth graders, small church, there were only like a handful of kids in this class, but I was teaching that night on David and Goliath, and I'm right in the middle of telling the story of David and Goliath, and this kid raises his hand, he goes, Mr. Chad, Mr. Chad! I was like, yeah, what is it? I called on him, and he goes, how do you know that Allison really loves you? And I thought, what does that have to do with David and Goliath? And where in the world did that come from? And I looked at him, and I was like, huh? And he said, I'm looking at you two and something doesn't add up and I thought well who do you think you are exactly but I didn't say that and I looked at him I said what does that have to do with the story of David and Goliath and he said you'll find out now I never did find out he never told me but apparently there was some there's some reason why he asked that question but again he distracted me to the point we were off subject and that's what interruptions do they redirect the entire teaching moment I think that's what's going on in Luke chapter 12 Jesus is teaching about how his followers are going to face resistance when they live for him and follow him and serve him. They're going to face resistance from the world and from others, from the religious leaders. And Jesus is trying to prepare them for that. And as Jesus is teaching, there's a man in the crowd who blurts something out. And this is what he says, Luke 12, verse 13. Teacher, sounds like a little kid, doesn't it? Teacher, 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 tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now I want you to notice something. This guy really doesn't ask Jesus a question. He kind of demands something from Jesus. You might say he makes a request of Jesus, but look at his language. He says, teacher, tell my brother. He's telling Jesus what to do in this moment. Now, his request may seem a little odd, because we think of Jesus as Savior, not as CPA. And this guy is bringing a financial question to Jesus. He's actually bringing a financial dispute in his family before Jesus. But in this day, it was pretty typical. If you didn't want to go to an official court hearing, or you didn't want to spend the money to go to court to have some issue resolved, then you would take your issue before a respected rabbi, a rabbi that both parties respected, and ask him to weigh in on the decision whenever he decided then both parties would agree to that. Jesus is the most famous, the most well-known rabbi in this area right now. So this guy thinks, I'll go to Jesus, I'll make my request, and if Jesus sides with me, then how can my brother not go along with what Jesus, this famous, well-known rabbi, said? But here's the thing. How fixated do you think someone has to be in order to blurt out a request like this in the middle of Jesus' teaching? teaching thousands of people I mean here we have God in flesh teaching a crowd of thousands and he's preparing them for the resistance that they might face if they follow him and serve him and this guy interrupts Jesus to make a request about his own family finances now, I know this may seem a little unusual to us, because in our day and age, families never fight over money. I know that. I know it doesn't happen today. That was like a 2,000-year-old problem. We've overcome that today. No, not really. Someone told me the other day, where there's a will, there's a relative. And I think that's probably true. But honestly, how obsessed does this guy in this passage have to be with money, with his brother's inheritance, to interrupt Jesus in this way? Pretty obsessed. Pretty obsessed. And I think here's what's going on. In this culture, in this day and age, when a father died, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. And then the younger sons would divide up the other one-third. If there was just one other son, then that younger son would get the whole one-third. Probably what's going on, I don't know this, the Bible doesn't say this, I'm speculating, but probably what's going on is this guy asking the question, he's the younger brother. And he's upset that his older brother, maybe he's the only other brother, he's upset that his older brother is getting two-thirds of the inheritance and he's only getting one-third. And he's thinking, that's not fair. It's not my fault I was born younger. And my dad loved us both equally. How come he gets two-thirds and I get one-third? And we can kind of understand what he's going through. My parents have told me several times when they pass away, and I hope that's a long time from now, but when they pass away my brother and I are going to get everything equally. 50-50. They're going to split it down the middle. That's how their will is set up. That's how a lot of you have your will set up. I get that. But in this day and age that wasn't common. The oldest brother would get two-thirds and then the younger brothers would divide up to one-third. And probably this younger brother is saying it's not fair. I'm just a couple years younger than him i worked on the farm just as much as he did how come he gets two-thirds it's not right jesus and jesus is all about justice so this younger brother is hoping that jesus comes to his defense maybe this guy is even a twin again i'm speculating here i don't know but maybe he's thinking i'm only a few minutes younger than my brother it's not fair that he gets two-thirds of the estate Now, that's one possibility. Another possibility is maybe this younger brother hasn't come of age yet because in this day and age, you had to be a certain age to get your inheritance. And so until that point, the older brother would still be over the entire estate. And maybe this younger brother is thinking, hey, I know I'm not old enough yet, but I'm responsible enough. I can handle my share of the estate. Go ahead and give me my part now. I want it now. I don't want to wait until I'm older. I don't know what the case is. I'm just speculating here. But whatever the case may be, here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't criticize the other brother. We would think if the other brother was doing something wrong, Jesus would say, yeah, he's doing something wrong, but you still need to focus. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't criticize the other brother who's not mentioned in this passage at all, who's not there that day. Instead, he criticizes the brother who asks the question, the brother who actually makes a demand of Jesus. Because Jesus is letting us know this guy's problem wasn't his brother, And it wasn't his brother's stuff, his brother's money. This guy's problem was his own heart. You see, this guy, we find out, is consumed with a desire for more, a desire for someone else's stuff. And that's why Jesus says what he says to him in verse 14. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I dare say after Jesus said this, that man who made that request, who interrupted Jesus, he probably faded back into the crowd. He probably took a step back and hid. Because Jesus has just revealed his heart. and He's probably embarrassed. See, Jesus, as usual, gets the inner motivation of the heart. He wants to peel back the outside layers and get to the root of the problem. And Jesus lets us know the real problem in this situation, it can be summed up in one word, and it's the word greed. The word greed that Jesus uses is a unique Greek word that literally means covetousness. I know covetousness is not a word that we use a whole lot in our day and age. Somebody doesn't walk around saying, Hey, I really struggle with covetousness. I mean, we don't talk like that. I get that. But what it means is wanting what someone else has. And we may not use that word, but we struggle with wanting what someone else has, don't we? Our culture has this struggle all the time. I mean, let's just be honest. Let me see with a show of hands right now, all of our campuses. How many of you guys know someone who struggles with greed? Anybody know a greedy person? Let me see your hands. Okay, just about everybody. That's what I thought. Okay, now raise your hand if that person is sitting next to you. The person next to you, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Put your hands down. I'm kidding. But what if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you struggle with greed? I see some hands going up. I didn't ask you to do that. I just said, what if I asked you? But I already see some hands going up because we know this is a problem we struggle with. Now, honestly, it's easier for us to point out someone else's greed than it is our own because the reality is, greed is a sin that's pretty easy for us to hide. But Jesus knows it's something that we all struggle with. And so he takes this moment to teach about this very issue because he knows greed is always destructive. It's always destructive. That's what the Bible teaches, Proverbs 119. This is what happens to those who are greedy. Whatever they get destroys them. See that? I love how the New Living Translation translates Proverbs 119. It says that greed robs them of life. Greed robs people of life. See, greed begins with an awareness of what someone else has. Then it creates dissatisfaction in our own hearts, and then that dissatisfaction consumes us. So Jesus, knowing that this is something that we all need to hear, tells a story, a parable, that he hopes will convict our hearts. And I think Jesus makes the point of this parable so obvious, so clear, that none of us should miss it. I don't think anybody listening to Jesus teach on that day, I don't think any of them missed it either. So read along with me as Jesus tells this story, this parable, that he hopes will convict our hearts. And it's found in Luke 12, starting in verse 16. The Bible says, And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop, a bountiful crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you then. Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says, with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now let me ask, if this was your first time reading this parable, or maybe it is the first time you've ever heard this parable, if you didn't know the end of the story, if you didn't know the overall point that Jesus is trying to make by telling this parable, would you have thought that the guy in the story did anything wrong? I mean, think about it for a second. He hadn't obtained his wealth illegally or immorally. He had worked for what he had. He's not blowing cash. He's building a portfolio. He's not spending impulsively. He is strategically planning. He simply wants to live a comfortable life. And who could blame him? Don't we all want to live a comfortable life? I mean, that's how we've been trained. That's how we've been trained to view life, to view material possessions. We've been wired in this way. Work hard, store up, kick back. That's what life is all about. Work hard, store up, kick back. In other words, as the guy in our parable would say, work hard, store up, eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, what's wrong with that? And yet Jesus, as he describes this man's life, he calls this man foolish. He says, that way of life, it's foolish. Now, why does Jesus say that? Well, before I answer the question, I think we first need to understand what Jesus isn't saying. First of all, Jesus isn't saying that there's anything wrong with being successful or that there's anything wrong with having wealth. As you read through Bible, uh, biblical history, what you will discover is God used many different individuals who had significant wealth to accomplish His mission and His work. There were people throughout Scripture who very much loved God and served God, but had some wealth. I mean, just look at guys like Job, Abraham, David, and Solomon. These were all financially successful men who at one time or another had great wealth. Jesus doesn't have a problem with wealth in and of itself. Jesus also isn't saying that there's anything wrong with investing your money for the future, saving your money up for the future, or having a productive work life. He's not saying that at all. I mean, look at what else the Bible says on this subject. Proverbs 13, says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. In other words, it's okay to save up money for the future or save up money for your children's future. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, the Bible says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, we're supposed to have a healthy work ethic. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. No, what Jesus is doing here is reminding his listeners of God's heart. And for that matter, the heart that we're supposed to have. Because our hearts are to be in tune with his heart. And what Jesus is doing is he's referencing an Old Testament passage which all of Jesus' listeners on that day would have known. It's a passage that is recorded way back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and it's actually a command that God gave His people right after they came out of slavery in Egypt, right after the Exodus period, when they came out of their bondage as slaves. And listen to what God says to the Israelites. Now that they are free people, now that they're no longer slaves, now that they're no longer poor, He's given them a new life. Look at what God says to them in Deuteronomy 24. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from, the, from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, the widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and widows When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, the orphans, the widows, the underprivileged. Remember, and here's the reason why God gives this command remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I'm giving you this command. In other words, in this Deuteronomy passage, God is reminding the people at one time you were slaves. At one time, you were poor. At one time, you were in need. At one time, you didn't have much. And you didn't have your freedom. But God was generous with you. God graciously acted on your behalf. And He gave you what you didn't deserve. And He brought you out of your slavery. He brought you out of your poverty. He brought you out of your needy situation. And He was generous with you. And so this passage is telling the Israelites, just as God has been generous with you, you be generous with others. Do the same for others. Use what God has now given you to help those in need. Use what God has given you to reflect His love. Show the same generosity to others God has shown you. In other words, Jesus is telling the crowd that day, you are to be generous as God has been generous to you. You are to be generous to others as God has been generous to you. You might say it like this, love like Jesus. I think you've heard that somewhere before. I'm not sure, but I think you've heard that somewhere before. Love like Jesus. See the man in this parable that Jesus tells? He has abused the generosity God showed him by not extending generosity to others. This man's focus was himself. He had no concern for anyone else. He had no concern from God. His focus was himself. And Jesus wants us to hear this truth loud and clear. A selfish life, a life defined by greed, is a foolish way to live. In God's eyes, a selfish life, a life driven by greed, it's really a foolish way to live. And sadly, so many people in our culture today, even those who claim to be followers of Jesus, even those who are actively part of the church, are so busy building bigger barns that they leave little time, little energy, little resource to build up God's kingdom. This man's focus was himself. And what he missed was that the clearest way to reflect God's heart is by demonstrating God-like generosity. Now, I'm not just talking about money here. I know any time that somebody hears the word generous or generosity in church, they automatically assume that the preacher's talking about money, and money's part of it. I mean Jesus is talking about money in this text, and so you can't get away from that. Don't blame me, just Jesus would not have taught about it. I'm just telling you what he told, what he taught on. But I'm not just talking about money, and I don't think Jesus just had in mind money in this situation. I think when it comes to the subject of generosity, Jesus wants us to be generous when it comes to serving, when it comes to volunteering, when it comes to using whatever gifts, abilities, or resources that God has given us to invest in others. So in this passage, Jesus makes it his goal to warn us, to warn us not to waste our lives, not to live foolishly. So he teaches us a few things about how to live a meaningful life, how to make sure you live a life that's not a waste in God's eyes, but a life that is full, a life that has value, a life that has meaning. And so what Jesus does in this text is he gives us a few reminders about life, and I want to share those with you. So here's some key truths about life that I think we can take from this passage. The first is this. Jesus is telling us your life isn't defined by what you own. I only just wants us to miss this point. Your life isn't defined by what you own. Look at what he says in verse 15 of Luke chapter 12. He says, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now the world tells us otherwise. The world tells us our life is all about what we own. But Jesus says your life isn't defined by that stuff. For most of us, it's not hard to relate to building bigger barns. Now, we may not be building literal barns. Some of you might be. I don't know. But our bigger barns, for the most part, are things like bigger homes, smarter TVs, better technology, more comforts, job promotions, more expensive cars, fatter financial portfolios. The list just goes on and on. And we think, you know what? If I could just get those bigger barns, and those bigger barns could be full, then I'd be, be happy. Well, let me ask, have you ever asked yourself the question, what would happen if I really got everything I wanted? Do you ever play that game like, what would happen if I won the lottery? I didn't have to share it with anybody. It wasn't divided, but I won the lottery. It was all mine, and I could buy whatever I wanted. You ever play that game for, what would life look like if I finally got everything I ever wanted? Most of you probably remember the name Deion Sanders. He was an incredible football player incredible baseball player in fact i believe he's the only person in american history to play both to play in both a super bowl and a world series just incredible incredible athlete and at one time he had everything but a few years ago he published an autobiography and in his autobiography he talked about his life and he reflected back on his life and listen to what he writes he says everything i touched turned to gold but inside i was broken and totally defeated I remember sitting at the back of the practice field one afternoon, away from everybody, and tears were running down my face. I was saying to myself, this is so meaningless. I'm so unhappy. We're winning every week, and I'm playing great, but I'm not happy. I tried everything. Parties, women, buying expensive jewelry and gadgets, and nothing helped. There was no peace. I had everything the world has to offer. Catch that line? I had everything the world has to offer, but no peace, no joy, just emptiness inside. Shia LaBeouf is a well-known Hollywood actor a few years ago, one of the most popular young actors. He's been in a lot of movies, TV shows. But he was interviewed by Parade Magazine a few years ago. And listen to what he says about his life. He says, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life. See a common theme here? Sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life. I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America right now. I have a great house. My parents don't have to work. I've got money. I'm famous. But it could all change, man. It could go away. You never know. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd feel it. I know what he's missing. You probably know what he's missing. He has everything the world has to offer, and yet he feels empty. He feels alone. He feels isolated. He feels like he's living a meaningless life, and there's a reason for that. Because life isn't defined by what we own. Life. Life is defined by the relationship you have with the one who owns everything. We can't find meaning through the stuff that this world has to offer. So the question that we need to ask isn't, what if we got everything we ever wanted? No, the question we need to ask is, then what? What if we did get everything we ever wanted, then what? What if we did get our bigger barns and our bigger barns are full, then what? Because in a split second, just like the man in the parable, those bigger barns could be gone or given to someone else for that matter, then what? The only thing that lasts is our relationship with God. And Jesus is telling us, don't invest your entire life in things you cannot keep while ignoring eternal investments that can't be taken away. Your life isn't defined by what you own, but by the relationship you have with the one who owns everything. So first of all, Jesus wants us to know your life, it's not defined by what you own. But then there's another truth I think Jesus wants us to remember, and it's this. Your life isn't your own. It's a gift from God. Never forget that. Your life isn't your own. It's a gift from God. The man in our parable thought that his life was set. He thought he had it all figured out. But then two words changed everything. Look back with me verses 9 through 20 of our passage. The man says to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And here comes the two words that changed everything. But God. It's funny how we think we have life all figured out. But then we forget about God. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? As much as we think our lives belong to us, as much as we think we're in ultimate control, we're not. Life is a gift from God. And on the day that this man's life was demanded of him by the one who gave him life, the purpose of this man's life in our parable was revealed for what it really was. He had made life all about himself. If you look back and reread the parable, you will see that nine different times in two verses, this man uses first person pronouns I, me, mine, my. He's all about himself. He never acknowledged God and thanked God for his life or for the blessings that God had given him in life. He thought he deserved it, he thought it all belonged to him. He was all about himself. It's interesting to me when it comes to little kids, there's one word that you never have to teach them, but they learn, and that's the word mine. You know, right now, Addie, my daughter, she's just over one year old, and uh, she's saying different words. She's saying, she's saying things like mama and dada, and that's just so sweet. But I know what's coming next. Eventually, she's going to say the word mine. Now, she hasn't said it yet, and we're never going to teach it to her. I mean, Alice and I will never sit down with Addie and say, okay, now, Addie, say mine, mine. Come on, say mine. We're never going to do that, but guess what? She'll say it. And I remember when Alex said it for the first time, he was, you know, an only child for a while until Addy came along, but still he would play with other kids and be around cousins or whatever. And I remember one time another kid played with one of his toys and immediately he snatched it away. And mine, I thought, where did he learn that? You know, we didn't teach that to him. You don't have to teach kids that word. They just kind of know it. And when little kids start to talk, it's sweet. I'm going to digress here for a second. I love to hear Addy, you know, say will say now. That is just so awesome. And if you're a parent, you've been through that, you know what it's like the other the day I was in my home office and I was sitting at my desk and I had my head down typing at my computer and all of a sudden I heard this sweet little voice say, "Dad, da and I looked up and there's Addie standing at the door to my home office and I was just like, "Man, that is the best!" But I know when the day comes that she snatches a toy away and says, "Mine!" I'm gonna be like, "Allison, that's your daughter, not mine." You know, and not at all. I'm kidding. I'll, I'll never, I'll never disown her. But it happens, and it happens all the time and it's something that kids really struggle with, not just kids, adults too. Alex, even though we've taught him over and over again to share and all that kind of stuff, he still struggles with it. He's almost five and. Just the other day, Addie uh, was playing with one of his toys. He wasn't playing with it, and he got mad. He got upset, and he took it away from her, and he said, mine. And so I sat him down and talked to him like, Alex, buddy, you got to share. You got to let your sister play with your toys. And he just wasn't comprehending what I was talking about. So I looked at him. I said, you know what Daddy's teaching on at First Church right now in the big room at church? You know what Daddy's teaching on? His eyes got real big. What? Like he was going to be let in on some secret. You know, what? What are you teaching on at church? And I'm teaching on generosity. Well, he didn't know what that meant, so I explained it to him. And I explained how God has been generous with us and loves us and we should be generous with other people and that really nothing we have is ours, that even the house we live in and all the food we have and the stuff that mom and daddy have, it doesn't belong to us, it's really God's. And so I'm trying to explain all this to him and I said, your toys, they're just on loan from God, basically. Everything really belongs to him and so you need to be able to share and be generous with your sister. So I got done explaining all this and I was just like, "Uh, so Alex, are you now gonna share your toys with daddy? Are you gonna be generous with her and he looked at me and goes, "Okay, but just this one time." And I was like, "No, that's not how it works. It's not just this one time. It is not how we are. It's like, "Okay, God, I get it. I'll be generous. I'll give a little bit more in the offering or there's a special Easter offering coming up. I'll give to that. I'll be generous, but we do it reluctantly." And that's not what God's talking about. God wants us to have a generous heart, live a generous life. And you know, it's little kids that we laugh at when they say mine. But it's something we struggle with all of our lives, I think. It changes from my candy and my Barbies and my Legos and my ball to my money, my house, my car, my bank account. And it sounds a lot like my goods, my grains, my crops, my barns. It's an issue of ownership. And the Bible teaches us that God is the owner of everything. We're just temporary managers of some things. Never forget that. God is the owner of everything. We're just managers of some things, some things that ultimately belong to God, that God lets us manage. That's what the Bible teaches, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything on the earth. And in the earth belongs to God. Even people, our very lives belong to God. The earth is Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And we know that intellectually. But how easy we forget that in daily life. So Jesus says, first, your life isn't defined by what you own. Second, he says, your life isn't your own. It's a gift from God. And then the third truth I think Jesus wants us to know, the third truth he wants to remind us of is this. Your life isn't for you alone. Share it with others. Your life isn't for you alone, so share it with others. In other words, what you own is not for you alone. A life with purpose is a life that reflects Jesus-like generosity. And we should wake up every single morning saying, I get to live out my life in a way that demonstrates what God has done for me. And let me tell you from experience, my own personal experience, when you live a generous life, it will provide you with peace, rest, security, satisfaction, like you've never experienced before. That's what the Bible says, Proverbs 11.25, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Did you catch that? A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will he himself be refreshed. And let me be transparent with you for a moment. You guys know me. I'm a transparent guy. I am who I am. And I'll tell you, there's a period in my life where I lived for Chad. There's a time in my life when I was very selfish. I was all about me. And I hurt a lot of people because of it. I hurt people I loved. I hurt myself. And all living selfishly did was lead to destructive behavior, a lot of pain, a lot of regret. And that's why Jesus says in this parable, verse 21 after the man loses everything, he says, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. I know from experience, generosity is the way to live. Thinking about others, putting others before yourself is the only way to live. This man's problem in the parable, it wasn't a wealth problem, it wasn't a wealth issue. It was a distribution issue. He used what God had given him on building bigger barns and neglected to build up God's kingdom. And I wonder if in the church today if we're not making the same mistake. According to George Barna, if you believe his research, 8% of Christians in America tithe. Now that's not 8% of people in America tithe, 8% of Christians, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, tithe. Just 8%. Now if you're new to church you might be wondering, what does tithe mean, what is that? The Bible gives us this example that the first 10% of what we make belongs to God, that it goes directly to God. It's not if we have that left over, but it's off the top. The first 10% that we make goes to God. It's called a tithe. And in the Old Testament, it says that if you don't give God back the tithe, that you're actually robbing God. That's the language that the Old Testament prophets use. And so I don't bring this up to guilt anybody into giving. And if you're new to church, you know, I'm not trying to guilt you into putting money in the offering plant. I'm not trying to do that at all. What I'm saying is, though, 8% of people who claim to follow Jesus tithe on a regular basis in our culture today. Do you think we have an issue maybe focusing on bigger barns rather than building up the kingdom of God? And I get it. We live in a culture that is constantly pressuring us to build just that, bigger barns. And in order to keep up with the Joneses, we have little left to build up the kingdom of God around us. But the question you need to ask is, do you want to be like everyone else? Or do you want to be like Jesus? Because one day, your bigger barns will be gone. Or maybe they'll be given to someone else. But the kingdom of God is forever. Forever. Don't live your life in such a way that when you get to the end of it, Jesus looks at you and says, man, that was a foolish way to live. Some of you have probably heard the name William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst was a very wealthy man and he was what you might call a stuffaholic. He had a lot of stuff. He had in his collection, which he collected over the 88 years of his life, 3000 year old Egyptian statues Flemish tapestries and more European art than any other individual on the face of the planet. He built a 72,000 square foot home, which is really a castle. I've got a picture of up on the screen if you want to look at it. A 72,000 square foot home to store all of the stuff he collected. And then he ran out of room in his castle and he had to build other buildings to hold all of his stuff. He had a property that was over 250,000 acres which he stored all of his stuff that he collected over 88 years. And then, do you know what happened? This is going to shock you. He died. And guess what? He couldn't take any of it with him. And he didn't have any family to leave any of it to. And so they didn't know what to do with it. His castle, Hearst Castle, as they nicknamed it, was located in Central California. And so what they ended up doing? They turned it into a museum museum. And now, for $15 a head, for $15 a pop, you can go and you can tour Hearst Castle. And people come every single day to tour this castle and all this stuff that this guy collected. And they go through the entire tour after paying their money, and they get done. And you know what everybody says when they get done? Man, that guy had a lot of stuff. And then they go home, and they live their lives. He collected all this stuff, and it's just sitting there now for people to look at. You know what one of the fastest growing industries in our culture is right now? Storage units. Storage units, one of the fastest growing industries. We live in such a blessed country that we don't even have enough room in our homes to store all of our stuff. So we got to go get storage units. And we say to ourselves, you know, one day I'll do something with it. One day I'll take care of it. But we never do, and then we die, and our kids get the key to our storage unit, and they go and they open up, and they say, man, mom and dad had a lot of stuff. And then they have to go through it, and they sell it at a yard sale. That's how it works, isn't it? My parents, they joke and they say, you know, we really, we really feel bad for you guys because when we die, and again, I hope that's a long time from now, but they say, when we die, you guys have the biggest yard sale ever. Look get all this junk that we don't need. And that's what we do a lot of times. And like I said earlier, Jesus doesn't have a problem with stuff in and of itself. Jesus doesn't have a problem with wealth. He doesn't have a problem with us saving for the future or even being successful, but he does have a problem. We're so focused on ourselves that we just spend our money on building bigger barns, but we're not rich towards God. And I want to let you know my heart. Guys, I really believe in what's going on right now here at First Church. There are exciting things happening at First Church, there are, so, there are exciting things that are coming here at First Church. And I really believe in what's going on. I'm pumped. I mean, I'm convinced that God hasn't even scratched the surface of what he wants to do through our church. We have a 100-plus-year-old church that has a great history and heritage, but I don't think God's even scratched the surface with what he wants to do through us. And he probably hasn't even scratched the surface in your individual life and what he wants to do with you. I think God has great plans for us, and he wants us to be a light shining out of northeast Oklahoma. But in order for that to happen, We have to share His heart. We have to make sure that our hearts are in tune with His. And that means being generous as He has been generous with us. Jesus is telling us in this passage, don't waste your life by just building bigger barns, but be generous to others as God has been generous to you. That's my challenge to our church today. That's my challenge for you today. Be generous as God has been generous to you. May First Church be known for, the most generous, for being the most generous church in Northeast Oklahoma. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had to come together as your people in this place and at our different campuses, those watching online. Father, I just pray that whoever has heard this message today that they will be convicted by the parable that your son told. Because we all have the tendency to focus on self. I do it, everyone in the room does it. We have a tendency sometimes to be greedy. We all do it. Father, may we be reminded about what ultimately matters. We have a tendency to make good things ultimate things. Let's not do that. But let's be generous with the different blessings you've given us, different resources you've given us, different talents and abilities you've given us. And let's go out and change the world by loving the world like your son has loved us. We just thank you so much for the life you've given us. We know it's a gift from you. We thank you for the blessings you've given us. And we never want to take any of that for granted. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.